And once I saw the effects of that kind of consumer lifestyle, I just I found it heartbreaking to learn that for me to have certain things required somebody else's land and lifestyle being taken from them and I can't undo those things but I can definitely do less to support the kind of economic system that keeps that balance in favor of the people with lots. Hello friends and welcome back to I'll Have What She's Having, a podcast that is here to uplift the voices of wonderful, amazing women where we meet at the intersection of our lived experiences and where often conversation becomes medicine for the soul. And today I am very excited to be speaking with someone who I have such a deep respect for. She is an incredible warrior woman and adventurer, someone who has chosen a life of voluntary simplicity and who has faced so much of her own fear and her own limitation and really met challenges in her life with such deep integrity and determination and also recently completed the full through hike of the Pacific Crest Trail. My guest today is Amanda Shale. As a young girl, a framed drawing of two bears sharing a tricycle, accompanied with the words, simple pleasures, life's treasures, hung on Amanda's bedroom wall. It is no wonder then that later in university when she learned about the intentional lifestyle of voluntary simplicity through a reading group, she felt a strong resonance and has been on this mindful path ever since. Slowly and steadily, Amanda applied it to all aspects of her life, finding contentment with ever less comforts and belongings until we come to this current iteration of her journey, trading the pursuit of wealth and status For a spiritually satisfying life, she has grown into a self-assured and storied wild woman, now in her mid-30s. Amanda, in simpler terms, too, is a dog mom, a van dweller of six years, adventurer, forager, podcaster, she has her own podcast, called WALK9 Radio, and she's also a photographer and a writer. She is one incredibly inspirational woman, and I know that you will just love this conversation with her today. I'll have what she's having. So welcome to the podcast, Amanda. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Yeah, yeah, it's been, we've been sort of trying to get this uh, interview scheduled for a while and Amanda's uh, on the road. She is traveling in the United States and right now you're in Arizona, am I right about that? Yes, that's correct. I am currently on the outskirts of Sedona um, in a very, very quiet place, which is kind of hard to find around Sedona. <laughs> yeah, I was actually um, reading through most of your recent blog posts. Uh, Amanda has an amazing adventure blog called Truck Tales. And I saw that photo with like the hundreds of RVs. <laughs> that we're all parked in that spot and I was like wow it's kind of different right because you are living out of a van which you call truck just so people don't get confused <laughs> yeah so yeah my van is named truck uh, because it's a good truck like off-roading compared to my last vehicles I lived in so yeah it was a bit of a contrast that parking lot uh, me and my kind of crappy uh van and hundreds of very nice rvs <laughs> mm -hmm. and yeah. is that just because the particular area you're in is a touristy area and there's a lot of people just there for sightseeing kind of thing uh yeah that particular spot was south of tucson and so it was mostly retirees who uh spend a lifetime working and saving up to buy very nice uh mobile uh, homes to travel in and I'm doing it more on the dirtbag end of the spectrum and not waiting till I retire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> a, you know a really good um, place actually for me to just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners and just give us a little bit of a perspective on the life that you've chosen for yourself right now um, and why you're living in your van with your dog. And maybe let's start there and then we can go back a little in where it all started. Okay, yeah. So um, I first moved into a van um, because I got priced out of housing. I was living in uh, Squamish, which when I moved there was in a lull after the Olympics. And it was a very affordable place to live with lots of options at that time. But um, you know, you can only get kicked out of your house so many times because it's being uh, sold and flipped and each time the rent goes up. And it got to a point where I realized that there was no way for me to enjoy the lifestyle I had moved there for while working the amount of hours I would have needed to continue to pay rent. Um, and then I had an unfortunate situation where somebody else in my building broke in and stole all the cash I had on hand. So I was more or less forced um, out of housing, even though it was something I was kind of wanting. And I actually intended to live in a tent on the edge of town. And this was, uh, this was going to be uh, early January. I was going to move into a tent and an acquaintance from town had an old, uh, old camperized van that he offered to me. So he gave that to me which is what started me in van life. Um, and then, you know, I lived in that van for a few months, the engine seized. So I lived in a tent for a while and then a minivan for a couple of years and then saved up for the cargo van I built out and have now lived in for three plus years. So uh, it's been really awesome getting to spend a lot more time doing the things I enjoy doing, like hiking and being with my dog, Frank. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And I'm curious for you, I mean, this is one of the reasons that I was so intrigued um, by you and wanted to have you on the show is, you know, this, this idea of voluntary simplicity that you've brought up and you've spoken about, you've written about. Um, and I think for you, it's, in my mind, it seems like it, it's very intentional. Like, yes, you got priced out, but there also seems to be a side of you that's maybe in a way always been wanting to create more simplicity. So how have those dynamics worked for you in your life? And what do you think, like, what was your process in, you know, sort of delayering yourself from this, this culture and this consumer culture, especially where it's a lot about stuff and things and homes and, um, you know, even within like athletic communities, there's still a lot of affluence. So what was different for you? Um, I think a large part of it was my upbringing when I was uh, very young and my family was quite poor and I didn't learn until later on that there were times when my mom would go without eating so that me and my brother and my dad could eat since he was the one working and we were growing. Um, but they did a really good job sheltering that from us um, by teaching us to enjoy simple things and things that were free like walking in the woods and we would just go on the outskirts of town and, and camp as a family. We didn't have very expensive gear and we weren't paying to go to expensive places or well-known or fancy places. We were just simply going outside to be together. So that kind of laid the early foundation in my life of, you know, enjoying our life without it being because money was being spent. Um, I was never in out of school activities of any kind. I was, it was, I was the kid that was come back for dinner and go entertain yourself. Uh, <laughs> so I would just do that outside, you know, like when, when the lights come on, come home type of thing. And then in my teenage years, I got very sucked into pop culture, um, you know, with like the kind of the subliminal programming of uh, Spice Girls and Britney Spears and that kind of stuff. I got very into uh, fashion and makeup and basically trying to be as hot as I could be and being like a strong, independent, empowered, sexy woman. And I got very... <laughs> all <laughs> you know, of there it. Was a strong all the things. There was a, <laughs> there was a strong emphasis on... Uh, the sexy part for sure um, and through most of my teenage years I thought by this point in my life I would be married with kids have a house and be like the type of powerful career woman that everyone just cowered at when she came around because you weren't going to mess with her um, so during those like hormonal driven teenage years that's honestly um, what I was aspiring to and then I never really fit in. I wasn't um, accepted by my peers. I got bullied a lot by the other women in school and taken advantage of by a lot of the guys. And so I learned a lot from that and it helped me see that I was working very hard to be successful in a world that I didn't really belong in. Mm -hmm. And then in, in university, I started to meet some a lot more, I would say, grounded people and had some sort of spiritual awakenings and learning opportunities, one of which was learning about voluntary simplicity, just the concept of it. And that kind of um, put my life back on the course 
I feel like I had been initially raised on Mm -hmm. and has since uh, blossomed into the life I have now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, also being a climber, being um, in that sort of dynamic in Squamish, there's a lot of other people that are living that lifestyle, whether, you know, they call themselves a dirtbag or not. There's some pretty amazing people living out of their vehicles, like full time. That is their home, mm-hmm. that is their way of life. And what has that been for like for you in terms of, you know, having other like-minded people doing the same thing? Um, and also, you know, is there a sense of camaraderie, a sense of support and, you know, that this lifestyle is actually validated within that community itself? Has that been helpful for you in this journey? Yeah, I think it really helped to uh, have friends when I was first living in Squamish, living in, uh, like living in housing, to have friends that I would spend most of my time with that lived in vehicles that were very fulfilled. Um, They didn't, at least they didn't express outwardly the hardships of this lifestyle or really seem to long to live back indoors. So I think, you know, having seen that, being exposed to it definitely helped give me a little more confidence moving forward out Mm -hmm. of housing. Yeah. And so also, and I'm just thinking about this journey of, you know, sort of moving into van life and it's been how many years for you now? Uh, More than six more than six okay yeah but I've only I would say out of those six years I've spent one of those years combined in a tent and then I'm not always traveling sometimes I'm just parked in family's driveway and spending time with them so it's not six years of traveling van life yeah but six years of my home being in a van (laughs) regardless of whether that's parked somewhere or whether that's on the road Mm -hmm. yeah yeah Well, what I'm curious about, though, for, you know, our listeners, especially because you mentioned the hardships of living in like the hardships of van life as well is kind of getting a perspective of that. What is it about van life that makes it really appealing for you? What makes it enjoyable? Why do you love it? And then on the other end of the spectrum, what do you find to be the most challenging about it? And how have you worked through those challenges? So I think for myself, what makes it most appealing is that I have a core belief that we have a right to sleep at night and that as humans, as animals on this earth, we have, um, we have the right to sleep for free. We're the only creature that pays to lay our head down at night. Every other creature on this planet uses their own energy to create a home for themselves. And so Uh, Living and housing really started to make me feel, in a way, victimized by a system that used housing for profit, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to have control over that core right to sleep at night, and so living in a van allows me to have 100% control over where I lay my head down, and I don't have to pay to sleep. I actually almost never have paid to sleep at night. So I find it really, really empowering. And then a bonus to that is that I'm seeing beautiful places and being out in nature and 
and not having all the white noise of society and not having the burden of paying rent. Mm -hmm. There are obviously insurance and gas costs, but most people are already paying that. Yeah. And then what about the challenges? Like what has, what have been your learning curves with being a van lifer now for for the past six years? Um, So I think a lot of the challenges that I have faced living in a van come from the way I've chosen to do it. So I don't have any um, heating or wired power or solar or anything like that. So if it's cold outside, I'm cold. If it's hot outside, I'm hot. I'm very much tied to what's going on in the world around me. And uh, when you live indoors, you're very used to having more control over your physical environment. And so um, that's been a big challenge. And because I also choose to not go anywhere during its peak season, I'm often um, traveling in sort of the shoulder climate. So I, I am colder a lot more than a lot of people who do live in vans and choose to go to all the hot spots. So you're saying they go to places there that are warm because it's easier to be mm-hmm. in your van. Okay. Whereas you yeah. are you are also living out of your van and traveling when and not connected to a home even where you can go in and shower and get warm mm-hmm. um, in times in lo- for longer periods of time because of being in the shoulder season. Yeah, because instead of going to the most popular place to go in summer because it's the warmest, I'm going somewhere that's less popular, which means it's colder. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for instance, I spent a couple weeks on this trip in Moab, and it was well below zero every single night. Like, there was nights it was minus 10, and I don't have heat. And um, so that can be a challenge, you know, if I want to eat salad which I enjoy I have to find ways to keep my salad from freezing um (laughs) (laughs) like so there's there's little things like that that uh a lot of people don't ever talk about or necessarily think about yeah well and I'm because you don't have a fridge you don't have any electric devices no yeah so I mean you're really when we talk about like simplicity like you're really embracing simplicity to a level I think that is a bit more extreme even than your average van dweller (laughs) um and so what what do you do when you're cold or what do you do when you know you're facing a lot of extreme heat what is your like how do you take care of yourself uh, for the cold, I've learned that the answer is lots of blankets and <laughs> mental fortitude. Yeah, uh, mental yeah. fortitude. I mean, blankets used to be a currency among Indigenous people. There's mm-hmm. a reason they're so highly valued. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, like they make a world of difference. And then I think a lot of it is that I've learned to be okay being cold. So where I used to be upset um, or angry about my situation, I've learned to be at peace with it. So I might be cold, but I understand that I'm still physically safe at the temperature I'm at. And so I've learned to not let it bother me or to have a bad day because of it. Mm -hmm. And how is this experience of being so close to nature and not being climate controlled, actually the opposite, the climate is kind of controlling you, uh, in terms of how you're having to adjust every day and, and plan. 
How has that changed your relationship with your body and with your psyche, like with your body as an, an animal body? Oh, I've learned that packing on weight for winter is a very good practice. And so I've had to learn to let go of the idea of how I want my body to look because it's serving me a purpose. And if summer ends, like, and we start to get cold nights and I'm craving lots of fat and I'm craving to eat a bunch of food so I can pack on weight, then I allow my body to do that because that's what's going to help me get through the winter. Yeah. So, um, and also to not expect my body to be a hundred percent comfortable all the time. I don't really think that most animals are just comfortable all the time. Um, so to, it's been, it's been really sort of empowering to live closer to the earth and to learn how to still enjoy my life without feeling entitled to a constant state of comfort. And that ties in mentally. Um, I feel like I've become a lot stronger and more resourceful being at the whims of nature. Remember the Animal, a poem by me. I felt it necessary to lower my body onto all fours first. Remember the animal, remember. And then with my cheek pressed to the cold, fecund earth, become a witness of the autumn that lives tenaciously underfoot tiny ecosystems locking arms with each other, nourishing, moving, rousing this perpetual pottage of life. From the ground up, decaying leaves, proliferating. Interconnected mushrooms, damp, spongy, bright green mosses, lively ferns shaking their tendrilled hips as raindrops and a little wind move upon them. I feel the breathing in and out of this place. I gather up the scent of this collective breath into my nostrils, into my body. Remember the animal and listen, listen still to the aria, this one voice, the choir of life in absolute unison. I want to remember this mystery the forest floor, all these little happenings, they are perfect, native, knowing they are keeping the world alive.
I brought my soul to the desert to dry it out, desaturate my longing and crack my doubt. I don't know what this place is all about, but I came here for a reckoning. The perfect kind of barren, a wind that takes. My worn out fear unhinges the gates that have held me in while desire waits. Yes, I came here for a reckoning. On a naked hill, the sun violating. No refuge to speak of, no chance of it fading. I watch as my poison is evaporating. Oh, I came here for a reckoning. Um, mm-hmm. you, you were just talking about the sort of fortitude that it's built in you and then that you don't always need to be comfortable. You don't always need to have things exactly the way you want them. I think that that's one of those things that is not very common though for us in the lifestyle that we live typically in the Western world in North America. Um, where, like you said, we do have climate-controlled homes and cars. I mean, if I wanted to, and I experienced this, like when I was just visiting family in Edmonton, you can press a button to start your truck from inside your car, <laughs> right? And you let the, the yeah. you let it idle and run for 10 minutes to warm it up. Then you like quickly run out to the truck and jump in where it's already warm and the seats are heated and all of that <laughs> um mm-hmm. and then you drive to your destination and just quickly like run into that destination that's already warm and I was thinking about how that is you know the creature comforts are definitely something that it has been built into the fabric of our lifestyle and our and our economy too is very much based on comfort you know buying things for comfort buying things to make your life easier make your life more convenient Um, And then when I look at you and I've observed your lifestyle, um, just, you know, from knowing you and from knowing people in the community that are also van dwellers and having attempted, attempted it myself, let's say, well, two years, two years living in a camper. Um, Yeah, that's doing it. (laughs) Yeah, doing it for sure. But I, I mean, I still had like a fridge and we were parked somewhere in electricity. So I feel like it was a little bit more glamorous. Uh, and heat. I had, I did have a wood stove, so um, I beat you with the heat situation. <laughs> but one of the things that it had really instilled in me was, like you said, learning what I can live without, which I had never, ever had the opportunity to even think about before then, because it was just such a given that I should be perfectly comfortable all the time. I should have all the things that I need around me and all the conveniences. And I never really had that fully kind of deconstruct or, you know, start to delayer that until I spent those two years living in that situation. And so I'm, yeah, I'm curious for you, you know, 
how deep does that go? You know, is there, and like, where is a level, do you ever feel like you're being a little bit too austere with yourself? Or do you actually feel like this is truly uh, just a deeper connected way to live within the human experience? Oh. I know that's kind of a big question. Yeah, that is a big question. I would say that I like the idea of having less than I have now. Um, when I lived in the minivan for two years, I couldn't even sit up straight. And that was at a point where it was, I felt unhealthy physically for my body. Um, so I did feel some guilt upsizing my van. But because I had been on a path of learning to consume less and learning to have less belongings for many years before living in a van, I actually feel quite comfortable um, in the van. And I feel like I have more stuff than I need uh, having lived in a tent for five months at a time on two different periods. Mm -hmm. This now feels extremely luxurious and very glamorous. Um, compared to being in a little piece of fabric, uh, <laughs> you know, on the ground. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's true, right? It's a, it's the contrasting experiences, and it's also the relativity of those experiences. So, you know, uh, a van with lots of blankets and a ability to sit up straight is a luxury in contrast to sleeping in a tent and being cold right and like you said it's it's a piece of fabric um mm -hmm. but then it also there's just so many layers to that right because i'm in the situation now where you know i live in a little cabin and it's a very it's a very small space in many people's perspectives it's like wow you live in under 400 square feet like how do you do it <laughs> And then again, for me, I go back to the point in my life where I was living in the box of a truck camper, right? And that little mm -hmm. box, that was my square footage for two years. And I came to a point where I was ready to have a bigger space because I am an artist and I wanted to have space to create uh, and make art. And that's really important for me personally. And so I had to come to that choice point of like, what's actually going to serve me in my particular energy and my particular life ways and living in a bigger space was the thing I needed. Um, but I, for you though, it's a different story because you have some really different motivations. And I know um, one of the things I really super respected and admired about you is your um athleticism and your choice to do longer through hikes and I feel like your path of voluntary simplicity and the strength that you've built both like physically and mentally and spiritually that's three things not both um <laughs> is probably contributed to your ability to kind of do those bigger through hikes. So I'm wondering if you would be willing to talk about um, those experiences as well and what it takes to get to that point where you could do a long through hike, you know, months and months at a time. And maybe just a little bit of what that experience was like 
and kind of how it ties into this journey for you of voluntary simplicity and not having and not working so much so that you can take these long periods of time to be be a wild human woman out there roaming yeah so i feel like with my choices through hike it was as much for the experience of being outside as it was a way to consume less than I do in the van uh, with hiking for say five or six months. I didn't have to pay for insurance or gas. Um, and I didn't have to as much interact with the world, like the, the, the human world around me. And that kind of ties into a lot of my motivations with voluntary simplicity is that I could see down the chain of effect of my life. Everything we do has an effect in the world and on people around us. Everything we consume, every interaction we have um, has effect. And unfortunately, being in the Western world, a lot of those effects are very negative at their furthest reaches around the world. Mm-hmm. And so my choice to through hike was largely um, about just having less impact for a little while. And so that I found really motivated my, my walk forward when it was very challenging. Um, I thought about why I was doing it and it wasn't to get the athletic tick. It wasn't for the achievement of through hiking it was for the experience of living a simpler life and trying to take less from the earth and from our global community as a whole because i feel like we generally all have a lot more than we're entitled to mm-hmm. um uh, i i always look when i'm having when I don't know what is right in the world, I look to all the animals around me and there are basically four things. I feel like all animals are given in this life and that's food, water, air, and shelter. And they're all clean. They're all free. They don't have to go to a job and be part of a system to do it. They just have to spend their own energy to acquire those resources. So whether it's moving their body to a water source or, um, you know, harvesting or capturing their food and breathing the air and building a shelter, no other creature on this planet takes more than their minimum need to survive and to continue their species lineage. And so when I look at my own life, and what I choose to do with it, I try as much as possible to always take a little less than I had previously been taking, because unfortunately, I was born into a world where I was very conditioned to have lots of things, to want things, to want comfort, and to feel like that is what I am owed as a human in this world. And once I saw the effects of that kind of consumer lifestyle, I just, I found it heartbreaking to learn 
that for me to have certain things required somebody else's land and lifestyle being taken from them. And I can't undo those things, but I can definitely do less to support the kind of economic system that keeps that balance in favor of the people with lots. Yeah, and what you're saying there is so profound because the lifestyle that you're talking about, like, you know, when we, when you're looking at animals and the needs they have is very much reflective of the lifestyle of indigenous peoples when, before contact, where mm-hmm. it's just such a beautiful and, and like symbiotic relationship with land and with people and with each other. And there was, uh, you know, there was a use of the earth and its resources, but it was never, ever an extraneous use. It was, it was a very integral use. It was a relational use. And the needs of the people were met, like you said, by their own energy, by their own inputs. And also everybody had, in that sense, a really valuable um, place in their society because everybody could contribute within their own effort something meaningful. So it also gave people a really important sense of identity. And that's also something that's really difficult. And I, and this is my perspective, but I feel like that's really difficult in our modern culture, in our consumer culture, in our extractivist culture, is that we are in this like competition system of trying to be all the things and get all the things and do all the things. And so our sense of identity is really skewed because it's not really based in community or based in how our effort really has a meaningful impact on a lot of people around us. We're just really individualized in that way. And when I think about being able to have that deeper connection um, with simple living and and being able to, you know, go for a long walk, I like to call it a long walk. Mm -hmm. Um, It's in a way, this sense of reclaiming that that is actually a livable reality you know, that you can survive and you can come out the other end of that um, with a deepened connection to that possibility. And just so our listeners understand, because maybe not everybody is familiar, what is through hiking, Amanda? Oh, so through hiking is when you get on a trail at one end and you walk to, um, in, in this sense, uh, it's long, very, very long, thousands of miles. So what I did was the Pacific Crest Trail. So it's 2,650 miles or about 4,300 kilometers. And so um, a through hike goes from one end of the trail through to the other. And the start point is not the end point mm-hmm. versus a loop trail where you go out and you walk in a loop and you end up in the same place or an out and back where, which is what a lot of day hikes are, mm-hmm. where you walk out to um, a beautiful spot or a picnic location or um, the end of the trail and then you turn around and you go back. So um, the, the definite definition of a through hike could be any length. It could be 20 kilometers or 50 kilometers, but generally in terms of the kind of scene and I'm doing air quotes, the scene <laughs> around through hiking is that um, it's, it's valid when you're out for a long period of time. So the, like the big three in the United States are the Appalachian Trail, 
the Pacific Crest Trail and the Continental Divide Trail. And those are kind of the crowning achievement of through hiking. And then anything less than like 2,000 miles is a short through hike. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And so how, how long were you out on this long walk? Uh, this was five and a half months uh, that it took us to walk from the Canadian border to the Mexican border through the mountains of Washington, Oregon, and California. Okay. So one part of me is, I mean, obviously, I, I would love to talk about your experience on the PCT, but I'm, I'm also curious, though, about how simple that really is, because to me, it seems like doing something like that would actually require a lot of planning and resources and um, just a, a lot, a number of, um, there's a lot of detail that goes into it. Let me just say that. Um, so how did you prepare yourself for something like that? And what, like, what went into that for you? Because to, to me, um, as someone who hasn't, first of all, doesn't have at this point that kind of physical capability or mental capability, I think about hiking for five months and I think it's an incredible feat. It's just, a, it's, an, it's not, I know it's not superhuman, many people do it, but it's kind of, it's a, being human within a different paradigm than I'm used to. <laughs> And so I have so much curiosity about what that took for you in terms of the preparation and then also to actually complete that journey from start to finish. Because um, I imagine there were times when it was hard and, you know, being in the society that we are in and be having the privilege that you have, you could just have called someone or asked for help or booked a plane ride or a, a bus and just like gotten out of Dodge, right? But you didn't. So I just want to kind of hear a little bit from you about the preparation for that journey and then what it took to complete it to the end. Uh, so for the preparation, there are three main uh, categories, I guess, of preparation, the physical preparation. So uh, basically that just involves hiking a lot with <laughs> some weight in your backpack um, because you have to carry uh, some weight the entire time you have everything you need to survive and all your food and water which I mean you get water each day as you go um, so in the year leading up to the PCT I did about a thousand miles of backpacking um, because not only was I preparing myself, I was preparing my dog who came with me the entire way. Um, and so, uh, unfortunately, you know, it's not a good idea for most dogs to be out there, but because we had lived this simple lifestyle with so much time outdoors, I felt it was appropriate to take him, but I wanted to make sure he was ready. So we did a lot more physical preparation than I would say the average um, through hiker, a lot of people will even start with little to no backpacking experience and take it slowly and build up as they go. Because when you're out for five and a half or six or seven months, that gives you time to get in pretty good shape wherever you're starting from. Right. Um, so there was that physical preparation. And then I did a lot of focus on the mental preparation um, so that 
when there was hard times on trail, I wouldn't feel the need to run away from it. So that included things like meditation, um, learning to not give in to the urges of my mind to seek comfort. Um, I spend a lot of time throughout the winter camping in very cold temperatures, knowing that it would never be that cold on trail, so that if I was having a hard day um, and maybe not everything was lining up, that wouldn't be the straw that broke the camel's back. Mm. Um, So there was that mental aspect of preparing and a large part of that mental preparation happened to have been living in a van. I was used to sleeping somewhere different every night, which can be a challenge for some people. I was used to being filthy most of the time um, because it's not a goal of mine to seek out showers and be clean. I would rather be dirty and immersed in the experience I'm having. So, you know, all those things about having lived in a van for four years leading up to this hike really helped me uh, mentally deal with all the challenges on trail. And then there's the logistical preparation, which when I started was so overwhelming that I opened up several tabs in my web browser, closed them and walked away and had a panic attack. The, <laughs> oh, the, idea, <laughs> the idea of like, um, where am I going to send my food? So many people will buy food as they go or uh, maybe a few stops ahead, mail a box if they know that there's not a good selection of food in that town. But because I wanted to eat a rather healthy vegan diet and have very good nutritious food for my dog, I decided I would mail all my food to us along the trail. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, not I would mail it. I would prepare the boxes and my mom would mail it. So Mm -hmm. thank you, mom. And Um, am am I, sorry to interject, am I correct in remembering that you also like made from scratch all of your meals, like all of your vegan meals? Yeah. So I didn't, um, yeah, I made all my own dinners by buying bulk dried ingredients mixing them together and creating dinners that I could cook on trail easily um, just to reduce the amount of waste and cost of the experience instead of eating um, the typical hiker diet which is totally mostly junk food um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which I I wanted my body to feel good in the experience I didn't want to just kind of scrape by on the calories needed. I wanted all the the nutrients so my body could be vital. So that was a major logistical challenge um, for me to be realistic and honest with myself about how fast or slow I would be hiking and which towns I would go into and where to have the food sent because once the box was mailed, I was committed to going there and committed to getting there on that timeline so that I didn't run out of food before I got there. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge challenge beforehand was that the whole um, food planning and also uh, committing myself to eating the same diet every day for five and a half months (laughs) and choosing uh, choosing an array of food that um, hopefully I would not get sick of. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm happy to say I did a pretty good job, except for anything with peanut butter. I just, I, to this day, I can't, I can't eat peanut butter or anything. Um, I'm so over you it. Did it eh? <laughs> Five months. Yeah. So I mean, luckily I have the privilege of not needing to just eat peanut butter to survive, because um, I know people that do live off peanut butter and honey sandwiches. So, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then. Then in the actual act of hiking the trail uh, is very much about staying present and not thinking about how far you have to go um, when those thoughts would creep in of like, wow, I just did 30 kilometers today and I have, you know, 3,500 kilometers to go. That is a very, very daunting thought. And so it took a lot of work mentally to not think past today or tomorrow and just be with each step on the trail and enjoy my surroundings enjoy that I have this opportunity to to be out walking for months mm-hmm. um it's like five yeah, months so. of practicing being present absolutely yes here now here now like sometimes that's just what it took to get through some of the tough sections because I have never in my life, even with chronic illness and um, like some spinal injuries, I've never experienced that consistent level of pain and discomfort in my physical form um, as Mm -hmm. the pain I felt in my feet and in my back from sometimes the weight of my backpack would be really heavy with food and water. So um, yeah, it took, it took a lot of just appreciating the opportunity and understanding that I am not entitled to comfort and that there's value in these difficult experiences if you put your mind in the right direction to see those lessons that are coming up. Across valleys folding, across waters frozen, across the time between my dawn and your setting sun. These are stories blowing, these words tender showing. How can I touch the shape of wing bandings falling away? Oh, tongue set you free, and oh, mind let it be. Oh, land teach me how to lay in the storming wind. Across hearts aching, across skies breaking, across the time between our suns. I'm lost in your stars, by the light of the dark moon. Just be as you are, just do as you do.
for the place between all longing and letting be speaking honey wine making wishes star side these are the arrows in the battle of becoming make me a warrior hummingbird disarming you be a compass to guide this flight take me surrendered fill me to spilling over the roots of this endless sky i'm lost in Just be as you are. Just do as you do. By grace and devotion. By letting go, letting go of everything. By brothers, it takes you. By the light of the dark moon. I'm lost in your stars. Just be as you are. Just do as you do. By grace and devotion. By letting go, letting go of everything. By brothers, it takes you. By the light of the dark moon. I'm lost in your stars. Did you ever feel lonely when you were in the mountains for that long? 
the only t- the only times I felt lonely on trail were when I was around a lot of people. <laughs> so because <laughs> so because I was hiking with Frank, um, who's my dog, uh, I had to hike his pace and in a way that was the best for him. So often that meant my hike didn't sync up with other people, whereas it could have if I wasn't with him. So I found that when I was around a lot of people who often were going a bit faster than me and just passing me, um, then that's when I felt really lonely because I would see them go by in these groups of people like laughing and giggling and like having this great time on trail. And I'm just, you know, I mean, I had Frank, but he's not much for conversation. And when you're walking for 10 hours a day, the conversation is a great distraction. Mm -hmm. So that's when I felt the most lonely. But when there was times on trail where maybe for, you know, hours or days, I wouldn't really see anyone. I was very at peace with it. Um, I don't get, I don't experience loneliness when I'm alone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm curious about that. So because there's a lots of natural human emotions that I could imagine would be a spectrum of emotions and an experience like that. And I'm um, even just dealing with the fear of the unknown when you're out adventuring for that long. Um, I just feel from an outsider perspective, that seems like a journey that really requires so much mental and emotional fortitude. And it's kind of what you're saying. It's like being present and then reminding yourself to stay present and stay present and stay <laughs> present because, you know, the loneliness, the, the fear, um, or the, I guess the striving to get to a goal, those things that are human tendencies, right. will will come mm-hmm. into the mind to, <laughs> if you're not having a conversation with anyone else, it's your mind that's trying to have a conversation with you, right? <laughs> like, yes, yes, it, it really does have a lot to say when there's nothing else to listen to. <laughs> yeah, but five and a half months, I mean, that is, do you feel like that's the most, like sort of the deepest act of simplicity that you've experienced up until this point in your life? Yeah, I I would say so. Um, because everything you have is on your back. That's mm-hmm. it. Um, and there's no, you know, there's no, there's no end in sight. Like I had to imagine it as something I was doing forever. Um, I didn't, think about the end point because if I did I would want to kind of get there a little faster and that would often make the experience less enjoyable so I had to just give in and and accept this is my life forever there is no end I just get up I walk I eat I walk I eat I walk I eat I eat I sleep like Mm -hmm. every day and and unfortunately social media ties you into the world and you see all these other things people are doing you're like wow you know maybe I want to uh, do something different with my life something uh, (laughs) I want to do something (laughs) because it starts to feel like walking is essentially doing nothing but that's Mm -hmm. why I went out there was to basically put my body on autopilot in a way that would keep it fit and strong and healthy so that my mind could essentially be 
in a more meditative state and that I would have the least amount of impact on the world. And so aside from doing that sitting, I can't really imagine a simpler way of living. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny with, that you talk about social media too, because I was following you on social media when you were on that journey. And I felt, to be honest, very envious, I guess is the word, but envy for me is tied to respect. Like it was a respectful kind of envy of, wow, you know, you, you are capable of this level of um, personal power to do something like that. And it's some, it's a personal power that I still uh, feel kind of far away from to be able to live that way for so long, even, even though it's, you know, it's a desire within me for sure. It's a desire to have that kind of experience, but I still have a lot of my own fears and um, neuroses to work through (laughs) before I could do something like that. But it's just so interesting to hear your side of it because on on social media, I was looking at you from like my desk job (laughs) being like, oh my God, this is what needs to happen for me. (laughs) And um, I think there were a lot of other people that felt that way that just, I mean, and I know it's not, it's not a glam, it's not glamorous, you know, traveling, doing a through hike for five months with every only thing, what you can carry on your back and being in pain every day is it's not glamorous, but there's something very powerful about that act and and about completing it. So I just want you to know that I really have like deep respect for you for doing that and completing that. And um, it just, it kind of gives me inspiration and gives me a different perspective on what's possible for human beings and also what's possible for women, single women who can just go out and live the way they want to live. Um, I'm curious for you, if you had any pushback on that experience or, you know, did you have a lot of support from family and from friends? Did you have, did you find you had to explain yourself a lot to people? Not that you would actually have to explain yourself, but (laughs) um, what was the sort of social dynamic for you in and all of this really in the van dwelling, the voluntary simplicity, moving away from the mainstream, pulling away from the economy, and then doing like massive um, through hikes and long-term traveling. What, what does that spark in other people? What does that provoke in other people that you've noticed? Man, so I noticed there's two main reactions to my lifestyle in general. Um, And that is one of complete admiration and kind of, I get a lot in the van. uh, I encounter especially more mature women in like in years who would say, if I was your age now, this is how I would want to live. And I remember when I was young talking with my grandma about what it was like when she was young and, you know, like she experienced um, gender segregation in bars and stuff and how women, if they wanted to work, they were either like a teacher or a nurse or, you know, they didn't really have many options (laughs) socially allowed to them. So the fact that I've, you know, more or less chosen to not have a family or a job is, just completely outrageous 
Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so I, I have had, you know, overall, my family has been extremely, extremely supportive of all my choices. There was a period with the van life where they weren't sure about it. They were really scared I would end up in kind of a dire state of poverty. But once they saw how I was thriving, they were completely on board. Um, and then the other kind of reaction I get, which is the complete opposite end of the spectrum, is not even so much like doubt or you can't do this. It's this like almost repulsive fear of like, how dare you live like this? If everyone lived like you, my world would be dismantled and I wouldn't be able to have all the comforts I have. So, and I don't think people necessarily can even see that that is kind of where their reaction is coming from. But that's how I interpret it is a, a real fear that I'm undermining the foundation of their comfortable, luxurious, entitled existence. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, feeling, feeling threatened by what you represent. Yeah. And you do, I mean, that's the thing, you do represent something and you do have a position and it's, it's a very powerful one. Um, and it does kind of, it is in stark contrast to the values that are currently sort of held up in our, in our construct of our culture right now. Um, and, you know, that's why I asked that question, because I'm, and I'm also curious for yourself, what has been, have there been moments when you've doubted yourself and what got you through that? Oh, yeah, I've absolutely doubted myself at times um, to either drive or walk myself far from family and far from the kind of ecological assemblage I am most familiar with. Um, mm -hmm. I found myself in completely foreign places. You know, even in the U.S., the the landscape is so different and socially the mentality of the people sometimes is so different that, like, it scares me because, like, I really, I have no business being here. Like, I don't know, I don't know what food I can eat. Like, I don't, know if I'm going to say something that's going to really offend someone um so yeah I've definitely had some times where I'm like what am I doing this is absurd um but I just try to uh, you know breathe <laughs> maybe cry it out a little bit you know maybe have like a little scream fest out in the wild but then you know breathe let it calm down and remind myself that this is one an opportunity to learn about a new environment which just makes me a more resourceful being it's an opportunity to learn to see from other people's perspectives even if I totally don't agree with them or respect it whatsoever it's still good to try to see where they're coming from um, and then also reminding myself that I chose this. I'm not a victim of this. This is my choice and that I'm choosing it to live in a way that is more fulfilling spiritually and in my heart um, by not just mindlessly buying into the way of life we're told we're supposed to live because that doesn't sit well with me. So just reminding myself that I'm choosing 
peace of mind over, you know, being okay with what's going on all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. But on the other, other end of that, do you feel proud of yourself? Do you feel good at this point in your journey after these many long years of this lifestyle choice? Or maybe I should say, what are you proud of? Um, or what have been moments for you where it's really confirmed for you that you are on the right path and that you are also in integrity with yourself? Oh, yeah. So pride is something I have a hard time with because I do get caught up, you know, comparing myself to other van dwellers and and feeling proud that I've done it for years longer than the average length of time most people live in a van. And I get very, you know, a sense of pride that I am doing it in a way that's uh, much less comfortable and awful lower budget than what is generally depicted as hashtag van life on social media. (laughs) But I also feel a lot of guilt for feeling that sense of pride because we're all on different journeys. And so I try to, you know, not get too caught up in allowing those like things I kind of feel proud about as part of my identity and try to um, feel more proud that I've stuck through the hard times and that 10 year old me would think I'm the coolest person ever. So (laughs) (laughs) um, just what I've learned with like, without even setting out to necessarily learn just because of um, my interests or having, giving myself the time to slowly learn so many different things, I'm really proud that I can compare what 10-year-old me was interested in and go, wow, like, I actually know some constellations now. I know what plants I can eat. And I, you know, have seen all these interesting things and answered a lot of these, like, childhood questions that I had, you know, back then. So, yeah, pride is a, a... is a really like hard thing. Uh, yeah, well, it's it's a it's a struggle. I deal with. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's totally fine. And I I think what I was really getting at is more the sense of rightness within yourself. You know what I mean by rightness? It's like a feeling of being. I, some people call it alignment. Some people call it, um, you know, right place, right time you know, whatever, whatever their, your word is for it is your, or your, um, your construct or your concept. For me, it's a sense of being really happy with the choices that you've made. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like actually respecting the choices that you've made and feeling good about them. You know, maybe pride is not the right word or proud is not the right word, but do you feel happy with the choices you've made and the life that you have created for yourself? Oh, I absolutely feel very good about the path I'm on and the life I've, you know, chosen to create for myself. And I have a lot of affirming synchronicities that go on that help me feel steady in my decision, even when times are tough. And so some examples of those would be, 
I have a thought to myself like, oh, I'd really like a pair of binoculars so I can look at the the mountain slope better or see the birds. And then maybe a week or two later, I'll be out walking and find a pair of binoculars on the ground. Hmm. And, you know, I've had countless situations like this where I think about something that I um, would like to invite into my life and it appears. Mm-hmm. And so that really helps affirm that these that the desires I do have are not based in sort of a quest for more or a quest to um, build up my ego, but out of uh, a very kind of out of a place that I feel like is is a lot more honest with myself and with my actual needs and desires and not me succumbing to the pressures of society. Mm-hmm. And do you feel more powerful now within yourself than you did, say, six years ago? Oh, absolutely. Um, to know that I have the physical ability to walk to distant water sources, that I have the not only um, like knowledge of plants, but I'm learning to really trust my intuition on which plants might be okay to eat or not, which I am not suggesting anyone follow that path when it comes to eating food, but I've definitely, you know, lived a little on the edge and felt like, (laughs) oh, this plant, this plant is saying you can eat me and I try it and it's great. And then later I go look in a book and it's like, yeah, absolutely. Like this is food. And I didn't know that intellectually. Mm -hmm. So I feel a lot more empowered as a wild being in this place on earth and less, less tied to all the social and economic and political systems that affect so much of our day-to-day lives. I feel a lot more free in my existence and like I'm, better able to actually look after myself and my basic needs. Mm -hmm. And what, how do you think that this connects with our ideas of, of poverty, our, our ideas of what is poverty and what makes us poor? (sighs) Poverty is a difficult subject to talk about. Um, because a lot of people are in very hard situations that aren't necessarily by choice. If you're, say, say you're born in a metropolitan city, an urban area, and um, you, especially if you are not a white person, um, and you come from a family that didn't have anything to hand down to you, life can be really really hard and until recently there hasn't been a lot of kind of role models starting to have a spotlight on them to show people alternate ways of living Mm -hmm. um but I feel like in my own experience um my my financial amount that flows through me in a year um is defined as well under the poverty line but because I've chosen to, instead of work and fight for more um, and learn how to have less, I don't feel 
like I'm in poverty. I don't feel like I'm not getting my fair share in any way. And I don't feel like anyone else is holding me down. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, I believe that if you have less than people around you and you want more, no matter how much you have, you could have a million dollars. And if you are looking at people with a hundred million dollars and you aren't happy with where you're at, you're going to still feel like your situation isn't good enough. Even if your basic needs are met, you're going to, they're probably going to feel more impoverished than I do because Mm -hmm. I'm content with what I have. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a, it's a tricky thing because it's, it's totally a, not a cool thing to just be like yo just like change your mindset like Mm -hmm. it's not that simple it's Mm -hmm. not that simple at all but I do believe that because society is telling us that we need more we feel like what we have is less than what it is yes um and so yeah it's it's it depends it's it's really different for everyone because some people aren't having their basic needs met. Some people don't have clean drinking water. They don't have food to put in their bellies or their children's bellies. But a lot of people feel like they don't have enough, even when their basic needs are met, just because of the, the contrast of our society and that we're constantly being fed images of people with more and, and being told that that's where we're supposed to be. Yeah. Well, and that's sort of what I, I was um, curious about with that question is um, I think there's a difference between abject poverty and um, the kind of poverty that we're speaking about right now, or the one that's more a sense of not having enough. It's more of a scarcity, Mm -hmm. a sense of not having enough that is definitely, definitely a product of the culture that we live in. And it's something mm-hmm. that I've also had a pretty big journey with because I grew up in a family that didn't have very much. Um, and I really learned how life could still be really good without a lot of stuff. And I was a really creative child. Mm-hmm. Um, my sisters and I played outside in the woods on a regular basis all the time. We used our imaginations. Uh, we didn't have a lot of actual material things, but we had so such a wealth of experiences and connection to nature and connection to creativity and art and music. And um, it, it really shifted my perspective of what it means to be a quote unquote poor person. Um, but then I'm also, I'm curious about um, the ways in which more and more voluntary simplicity and say returning to right relationship with the land and with land-based communities actually is such a beautiful antidote to the poverty that we actually really do see in our communities because um, there's a way that we can learn how to live with less and how to share more of what we have. Mm-hmm. And it's that sharing, it's that other step too. It's not just living with less, but I find that people like yourself 
who are, are kind of living more of a wild life and a connected life in reciprocity with land and with animals and with water and with people and with, you know, all the elements also tend to have a certain kind of generosity that is really interesting <laughs> where it's like, Oh, I just har <laughs> harvested this. or I just forged this. Why don't I give some of this to you for your dinner? You know, I've had so many beautiful experiences with very generous wild folks who seem to not have a fear of not having enough. So they share. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I love that quality that comes from feeling like your needs are met by the earth. Like it really takes away that scarcity mentality. That's a really big part of our culture that drives, I think it drives the consumption and it drives the comparison and it drives the striving and the urgency to be and do and get more and more and more. And when you draw mm -hmm. yourself away and you just like pull back from all of that and you become present to what you really have and how you're really supported and the earth actually does have what you need. Um, it, there's a certain peace that's created from that that can actually make it possible for you to then be more generous. <laughs> and um, yeah, I just, I really appreciate that. The sort of healing that is possible from voluntary simplicity. I actually think it's a way to heal our minds from the way that our capitalist culture has really kind of broken them. <laughs> Um, and broken them in, in pretty significant ways because we don't really have land-based communities anymore. And I know that that's a desire for many that we can bring that back. But what I'm also wondering for you at this point, um, how are you feeling about the lifestyle that you're living and how, like, how far have you gone into um, being really sort of subsistence based, like, are you doing a lot of your own foraging and hunting? And is that a desire or a goal for you? What are your ideas and thoughts on that? Uh, so I definitely would not say that I am like subsisting off the land. There are times seasonally when like especially in spring or summer where I'm in places where I can get a good portion of the food I eat uh, from the wild and usually I'm you know would like say if I'm out mushroom picking I would buy potatoes and onions and then pick mushrooms and berries and that that that's enough for me to feel content and nutritionally satisfied uh, but it's really hard not having a place to call home mm -hmm. Um, to be to be able to fully subside and that is something that is one of the few things in life I really would really want but I don't have a place I belong I'm not from North America like I mean I was born in Canada but I don't have um, a community of people that have always been here that I belong to I don't mm -hmm. have a home territory I have nowhere to set roots where I belong without buying stolen land. Mm -hmm. And so that unwillingness to buy, to like pay into that system 
means I'm kind of in a way trapped moving around, um, which requires me to, you know, do different types of work to have some cash to be able to like, you know, go to the grocery store or um, things like that. So it's really a hard place to be in. Um, And it's something I don't think is really talked about Mm -hmm. um, is that there is a lot of Western people who feel very lost having nowhere. We don't even have somewhere to fight for um, because we've just never had anywhere. We, I I mean, it's, it's a really hard thing to explain, but I wish I belonged somewhere because I would just stay there and live, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but I don't belong anywhere. Um, Yeah, Yeah. It's well, I mean, so two things, first of all, thank you for saying what you said about, you know, let's talk about home ownership or land ownership being the result of land being stolen from the first peoples here in Canada mm-hmm. and in the United States and everywhere. <laughs> so my partner and I have struggled with that greatly. And, and a lot of people don't understand that way of thinking. It's like, well, you know, that's just the way it is now. But there, there is a certain part of, of um, a really insidious part of privilege for us anyways. And I'm not trying to project a belief on anyone else that it's possible for us to own land only because, like you said, that land was forcibly stolen from other people mm-hmm. before us, right? And then in yeah. our, in our um, European ancestry, like what you're talking about, not having a place that you can call home, our European indigeneity is, is very deeply buried in history as well. And we were also mm-hmm. at some point colonized by, dom- by the dominant culture of that time. Mm-hmm. And so one of, the, one of the most poignant phrases that I heard about this, this like very interesting dynamic that exists for settlers and indigenous people right now is that settlers live in the absence of what they lost and indigenous people live in the presence of what they lost. And that's that idea of home and roots and culture and all of it is it's super complex right now. It's super complex. And I just really want to honor your, your experience with that and honor the feelings that you have around that um, because I, I also feel very um, similar. And I have also found it to be a struggle to know what home really is.
that's one of the reasons that I think the van life, the van dwelling, let's say vehicle dwelling, tiny homes, movable tiny homes are becoming so um, popular and and popular in a very conscious way because I think there are quite a, quite a few people who are f- feeling into that same paradigm of like, I, I kind of need to be on wheels. I need to have my home be wherever I go <laughs> because mm-hmm. I can't necessarily put down roots in the communities where I've I was born and raised or I went where I went to school or whatever it is. So it's this sort of, it's like a rooted and uprooted uh, group of people. Cause I think someone like yourself, you're very rooted and grounded in who you are. You're very rooted and grounded in your relationship and your kinship with the earth. You're very rooted and grounded with um, your beautiful companion, Frank. So there's, <laughs> there's elements of home wherever you are. It's just not in the same way that we've always been taught to think about home. Yeah. Yeah. A perpetual visitor. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. So then, you know, learning how to be uh, a welcome visitor. Yes. Yeah. That's, uh, that's an adventure and a journey in and of itself. And it has mm-hmm. so many layers. It's very humbling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I just, um, I so appreciate your story and your experience and sharing your journey here. Um, like I said before, I really do think that you're an exceptional human being. Um, and I think you're an exceptional human being because you've put work and heart and soul into becoming an exceptional human being. Um, and so, yeah, just really like deep, mad respect for you. Um, and I wanted to give you the opportunity before we sort of close this conversation to just share some of the things that you're creating, some of the things you're doing, um, and where listeners can connect with you online, um, because you have some pretty, pretty great offerings as well. So I just wanted to give you the floor and to talk about that or any other closing thoughts that you have as well. Okay. Yeah. Before I, um, before I plug my social medias. I would just like to take a moment and say that this journey has been a very long one. And if when I learned about the concept of voluntary simplicity, if I had been thrust into my current lifestyle, I might have, it might not have gone over well and I might have revolted and gripped more strongly to what is the cultural norm. And so I think it's, it's just really important for everyone to allow themselves to move forward at the pace that is comfortable and sustainable for them, which is a weird contradiction to move comfortably into discomfort, (laughs) to learn to be, to learn to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, But I was very mindful from the beginning to not take bigger steps than I could do safely or sustainably without my goal was to not have to go back words from it. Hmm. So um, like you said, this has been, you know, I've been mindfully learning to live with less and, you know, less belongings, less entertainment, less, um, you know, status and wealth for many, many years. And so it, I didn't just appear here mm-hmm. overnight. Um, but 
even where I am now, there's still, I still see a path ahead, a more simpler path. And it's not that where I am now was the goal, but the feeling of progressing in a way that I found I was honoring my core beliefs is what has been fulfilling the whole time. Mm. Um, not the not this result in this little snapshot you see today it's being on the journey is the reward to always find ways to learn to be more simple in my relationships and my physical life so just I just don't want anyone to go oh like I can't live like that Mm -hmm. I think everyone has the ability if they want to to take little steps and simplify their life in a way that allows it to be more fulfilling um, and more connected to the earth yeah yeah thank you for saying that and and just for acknowledging the process you know, um, because that is, like you said, that is the, the way to get to where you are is not by just thrusting yourself into that lifestyle. It's mm-hmm. by being on a very integrity driven long-term path with, you know, choice by choice by choice by choice kind of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for, for yeah. saying that. Um, yeah, so as for my social media, <laughs> um, I want to hear all yeah, about your I social go... media. <laughs> okay, so I go by Tideline to Alpine um, online, kind of everywhere. So that's Tideline, like at the ocean, to like T-O, uh, Alpine. And so I'm on Instagram, and there I share a lot about um my devotion to Frank and our adventures. Um, And, you know, I've always had a passion for photography. So, you know, I definitely get into the whole like stage, like Instagram worthy photos, but I'm trying to share more of my creative uh, passion for photography and like the the landscapes I like to capture. Um, and I also have a Facebook page and I make sure to share slightly different content on the two and not just like put the same thing in both places so that there's a reason if you want to follow both. <laughs> um, and that's where I always post uh, updates on what's going on on my website. So on my website, I have been blogging for uh, this trip. I have 10 weeks of blogs up so far. Um, which is being a really, uh, you know, challenging journey to actually dedicate myself to this idea that I am a writer and had spent so many years kind of resisting the call. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, it's been hard, hard to, to commit to my creative practice, but I've also learned a lot from it so far. Um, and I also write like trip reports and a bunch of resources on, you know, backpacking and through hiking with dogs, which I also have a podcast that I started just to help people who want to um, spend more time outside and backpacking or especially through hiking with their dog, because there's not a lot of resources and um, 
for me, it was a really fulfilling experience, but I want to make sure that if I'm inspiring people to do that, that I'm also helping them keep their dogs safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what's the name of your podcast? Oh, it's WALK9 Radio. So Walk 9 Radio, but as if you're saying it so you don't want your dog to get too excited that you're about to go for a walk. (laughs) (laughs) I love that so much. WALK9 Radio. Oh, wow. That's so great. You know what? I never knew that. I've just always called it Walk 9 up until this point. So I know you said it, but it's wonderful. Great. And I wanted to say too that um, I really, I really, really love your writing style. Um, sometimes reading trip reports, especially, they can be, they can be hard to sort of really um, commit to for when someone's on a long trip. But there's just something about your writing style that feels so present moment, and it just takes me right to where you are and what you're doing. And I, I feel, I don't know, I just feel really captivated by it. So there's something there. You definitely have oh, thank you. Awesome skill. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm, I'm practicing. So, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, once again, I thank you so much for taking the time to find an incredible spot somewhere in to, outside, outside Sedona. Yeah. Outside Sedona. There you go. To, I'm not sure what the actual name of this uh, desert landscape is, unfortunately. Okay. You're in some desert <laughs> yeah. outside of, uh, what did you just call it? Sedona? Sedona, yes. yeah. Sedona, Arizona. Yes. Lovely. And yeah, thank you for being there and for having this conversation with me and just for sharing your experience and your journey with, with all the listeners. I think people will definitely feel inspired and encouraged by this conversation, especially because of the way that you have presented it and that in the way you've owned the challenges and the process of getting from where you were to where you are. Um, I think that there is a lot for us to glean from that and um, even just apply to our own lives wherever we are and whatever shift that we feel we want to move into with lifestyle and choice, whether it's, you know, wanting to become more athletic or change the diet and um, learn how to through hike, whatever a person's Mm -hmm. um, vision is for themselves. It's like a really great reminder today about process and about learning Mm -hmm. and the step-by-step and that it's all possible when you do it that way Mm -hmm. commit and you devote Mm -hmm. so thank you so much so so much for your your devotional practice that's really kind of how I see your life it's it's just a it's just a very long devoted practice (laughs) to (laughs) quite a few things to presence and simplicity yeah yeah thank you I'll have what she's having. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode of I'll Have What She's Having. Hope you enjoyed what you heard today with Amanda Shale. And just remember, you can go check her out at Tideline to Alpine. Uh, Her social media platforms are incredibly fun to follow, lots of great information. And then there is also her podcast, WALK9 Radio. So be sure to give that a listen, especially if you have a dog that you want to do some through hiking with. 
The music that you heard in today's episode started with Karma Cat by Diella, which is our podcast theme music. Breezy May by Axel Tree from the Free Music Archive. Bluebell by Axel Tree from the Free Music Archive. The song Stars by Island Rail from the Free Music Archive. And finally, Ancient Discoveries by Gabriel Lewis from Epidemic Sound. And I would like to thank my dog Tig for being exceptionally cute and sitting at my feet for most of this post-production part of the podcast. 